Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to the very last Hooting Yard on the air of 2005, because next week it'll be 2006. My name is Frank Key, um, and I'm going to read to you... What I'm going to read to you this week, um, among other things... I've recently been involved in a multi-part TV serial called Blodgett and His Pals Hang Around on a Mysterious Island After Surviving a Plane Crash. And I've got two episodes. Um, I won't be reading the script as such, more kind of production notes or a sort of summary. And this is... um, I'll read one episode now and... uh, the second episode later in the show. So this is um, one episode from Blodgett and his pals hang around on a mysterious island after surviving a plane crash. Our fang van der Hugendorp is covered in blood. Dobson and Marigold Chew do medical stuff. Our fang van der Hugendorp is croaking. Marigold Chew says... What's happening, Dobson? Dobson. His lung just collapsed. Tense music. Tracheotomy. Tiny Enid winces. Dobson tells Marigold Chew to go to the beach and ransack fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol's stuff for rubbing alcohol. Flashback. Dobson is tying a bow tie on a young mystic badger named Little Severin, who says... You can still back out, Dobson. Arfang van der Hugendorp is still croaking and bloody. Dobson says, I'm going to save you. Daytime on the beach. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol, his spectacles nowhere in sight, offers Minnie Crunlop a fish. The raft should be ready in about a week. Old Halob offers the grunty man a fish. Neither Minnie Crunlop nor the Grunty Man want fish. Marigold Chew arrives and demands all of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol's alcohol. Dobson is stitching Arfang van der Hugendorp's chest up. He's still groaning. He needs a blood transfusion. Pabster's Tack asks Dobson where Blodgett is. Flashback pre-wedding party. The future Mrs Dobson makes a speech. A year ago she broke her back. It's a bit like Blodgett's sister breaking her neck as a child, though this is not made explicit. They said it was inoperable. She says, but there was Dobson and he promised to fix me. He's the most committed man I have ever known. I will dance at our wedding. Dobson looks soulful. Tiny Enid puts a twig in Arfang van der Hugendorp's mouth, which is not a herbal remedy, despite Dobson's protestations. They pull him about, and he makes very loud groaning noises. Marigold Chew trips over in the forest, carrying her rucksack full of rubbing alcohol. Something is lurking in the trees. It's Minnie Crunlop going into labour. Marigold Chew says, You're having contractions, Minnie Crunlop. Minnie Crunlop says, No, I'm bloody not. Marigold Chew says, Help! Somebody help! The grunty man hears the yelling and runs into the forest. 
Marigold Chu tells the grunty man to go and get Dobson. Arfang van der Hugendorp has stopped groaning and is now quivering in shock. Tiny Enid asks him what blood type he is. He eventually groans, A negative. Dobson tells Tiny Enid to go and find someone with A negative blood and to find Mrs Gubbins too. Mrs Gubbins and Lothar Preen are out walking. Lothar Preen has made a surprise picnic for them on a secluded beach. Pabster's Tack has been asking people about their blood types, but nobody knows. He doesn't even know his own, quote, bloody blood type, unquote. Tiny Enid has found a plant with very thin, sharp needles. Dobson says that he is a universal donor, whatever that means, and will risk giving his blood to Arfang van der Hugendorp. Flashback. Dobson is playing the hotel piano. His fiancée, Matilda Spamclot, joins him for a duet of heart and soul. Dobson looks soulful again. The grunty man arrives to get Dobson and comes face to face with Tiny Enid. Intense looks between them. The grunty man explains that Minnie Crunlop has gone into labour. There is much babbled English-Korean chatter with Tiny Enid interpreting. Dobson tells Pabster's Tack to go and tell Marigold Chu that she has to deliver the baby. Night. Minnie Crunlop's contractions have stopped. Then her waters break. Dobson is in a vigil over bloody Arfang van der Hugendorp. He's still breathing. I screwed myself up pretty bad, he says. Then he starts muttering, plain, hatch, plain, hatch. Blodgett said not to tell anyone about the hatch. Dobson says, what hatch? Mrs Gubbins and Lothar Preen are canoodling chastely at their nighttime picnic. Mrs Gubbins tells Lothar Preen that Arfang van der Hugendorp is not her brother, but her stepbrother, and he is in love with her. She has feelings for Arfang van der Hugendorp, but not like that. Mrs Gubbins wants to take things slowly with Lothar Preen. Minnie Crunlop is having her baby. The grunty man and Pabster's tack arrive. Marigold Chu says, Where's Dobson? Pabster's tack says, He couldn't come. He's pouring his own blood into Arfang van der Hugendorp's arm right now. Minnie Crunlop says, I was out there for a week. Some days I don't remember. What if they did something to the baby? Dobson and Arfang van der Hugendorp again. All the blood is gathering in his leg. Dobson says, Compartmentalisation. Flashback. Night. Dobson sitting by the hotel swimming pool. Dad arrives. Dobson explains that Matilda Spamclot wants them to write their own wedding vows and he just can't think what to say. He doubts his ability to be a good husband and father. His dad says... Commitment is what makes you tick, Dobson. You just don't know when to let go. 
Dobson says he has to amputate Arfang van der Hugendorp's leg. There is no other choice. Minnie Crunlop is pushing, but trying not to. Baby knows I was going to give it away. It won't want me. Babies know. Marigold Chew moves into inspirational affirmative blather mode. The grunty man and Pabster's tack sit nearby, being manly together. Tiny Enid tells Dobson he can't save Arfang van der Hugendorp. Tourniquet round leg time. Dobson and Tiny Enid stare at each other meaningfully. Arfang van der Hugendorp groans. Dobson starts crying. Flashback. The wedding. Dobson is lost for words when the time comes for the exchange of self-written vows. I didn't write any. I've been trying for a month and I couldn't. You got it all wrong. I didn't fix you. You fixed me. I love you. Tears and sobs and kisses and applause from the assembled throng. The minister, by the way, is an elderly, chubby, mustachioed man who may be Malaysian. Very quick pre-advert scene. Has Dobson just amputated Arfang van der Hugendorp's leg? I'm not sure. Dobson and Arfang van der Hugendorp have a muttered, whispered and incomprehensible conversation. There are deep emotions in play. Dobson is sobbing again. Minnie Crumlop is yelling as she has her baby. Successful delivery. It's a boy. Dobson and Arfang van der Hugendorp again. I think Arfang van der Hugendorp is going to die. Yes, he does. His last words, Tell Mrs Gubbins. Tell Mrs Gubbins. Minnie Crunlop brings her baby to the beach. One of those scenes of everyone looking meaningful with moving music and slow motion. Mrs Gubbins and Lothar Preen return hand in hand. Dobson walks towards them in slow motion to tell them the dreadful news. Silent, just the music. Birth and death, you see, very profound. Mrs Gubbins looking at Arfang van der Hugendorp's corpse and convulsing in sobs with still only a music soundtrack, tragic violins. Dobson is sitting on the beach staring out to sea. Marigold Chew joins him. They look at each other in a meaningful marigold chew Dobson sort of way. Dobson says, Ah Fang van der Hugendorp didn't die. He was murdered. Marigold chew says, Where are you going? Dobson says, To find Blodgett. Woohoo. Thank you.
What you should know about the Carpenters. Karen played the drums and sang. Her brother Richard played keyboards and sang backing vocals. Unfortunately, Karen died when still young. Richard is still alive, still active in music, but the Carpenters, as a duo, are no longer with us. These bare facts stated, astute listeners will note the remarkable similarities between the Carpenters and the homonymic The Carpenters, who were so successful during the 1970s with songs such as Close to You and Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. Neither of these was songs was recorded by the Carpenters of whom I speak, for their music was somewhat different, an outre blend of salsa, bluegrass, acid, jazz, bell ringing and caterwauling, often driven by motorised electronic balalaikas programmed by Karen. Richard was known to be fond of factory hooters. Their debut album, The Carpenters Play the Music of James Last from an Abandoned Salt Mine, included the astonishing 16-minute Dying Bee Music number 8, which featured guests including Blodgett, Blodgett's Dentist, and Blodgett's Dentist's Dentist. Sales were few, and a booking on a transatlantic cruise liner proved ill-advised. Neither Karen nor Richard could swim, and when the ship sank off the Auckland Islands, they spent six weeks marooned in a dinghy, fighting. Some say Karen's health problems stemmed from this ordeal, and they may well be right. But in the words of the old farmyard saying, never put two carpenters in the same dinghy. Their Annus Mirabilis was probably 1975. In a nine-month period, they released no less than 26 EPs, each of which was conceived as a punitive retrenchment, to use Richard's phrase. Karen scoffed at this description, incidentally, preferring to think of these matchless works as lullabies for locust swarms. The most startling thing about the record is the pared-down instrumentation. Karen thumping the sole of her boot on a giant drum, Richard tentatively prodding the black keys on a plastic toy piano. Both of them sang, of course or rather hummed, gargled and choked. After Karen toppled from a radio mast in 1981, Richard approved the release of just one further recording, a set of minuets and bagatelles arranged for brass band and an electrically enhanced flock of chaffinches. Karen's drumming had been recorded pneumatically in the clinic where she spent her final years. We attempted to interview Richard for this short piece, but his people sent an email saying that he was far too peevish. just like to read two quotations now the first is from um what british cats think about television 
which is a genuine pamphlet written in the 60s by Norea de Clifford. And she wrote, Most cats show an interest of some kind, though it is often of hostility. A significant reaction is the display of excitement when any picture, especially of birds, moves quickly across the screen. One of the things I'm particularly fond of there is the title of the pamphlet, What British Cats Think About Television, as if obviously foreign cats have completely different views. Um, the second quotation, completely unrelated, is from um, a book called From the Tideless Sea by William Hope Hodgson. I am writing this in the saloon of the sailing ship Homebird, and writing with but little hope of human eye ever seeing that which I write. For we are in the heart of the dread Sargasso Sea, the tideless sea of the North Atlantic. From the stump of our mizzenmast one may see, spread out to the far horizon, an interminable waste of weed, a treacherous, silent vastitude of slime and hideousness. A vastitude of slime and hideousness indeed, but you won't find that on Blodgett Island. Here is another episode. Lothar Preen is looking soulful. Mrs Gubbins is tending R. Fang van der Hugendorp's corpse. We shall not see those eyebrows again. Lothar Preen is looking even more soulful. Lothar Preen tells Mrs Gubbins that Arfang van der Hugendorp was very brave. If there is anything I can do for you, he says soulfully. Flashback. Lothar Preen is under military arrest at Loopy Cops Aerodrome. He is taken into a room where a female CIA agent and a male Port of Tongs Secret Service agent tell him they want him to help crack a terrorist cell in Hoon. One of the members is an old pal of his from the Tantarabim Republican Guard. It's seven years since you left Tantarabim and you've been travelling ever since. You're either running away from something or you're looking for something. Yes, indeed. He is looking for Cloris Preen, though mysteriously, no one ever called her that, spits Lothar Preen angrily. So they're all off to Hoon. Marigold Chew is in the forest. She comes upon exhausted, desperate Dobson. Marigold Chew says, come back. Dobson says, I'm looking for Blodgett. He lied. Why did he lie? I based my medical treatment on his lie. Marigold Chew says, People are scared and upset. They need you back. The beach. Solemn music. Arfang van der Hugendorp's funeral. Everyone is looking very deep and meaningful, holding hands and comforting one another. Lothar Preen is now looking even more soulful than before, if such a thing is possible. Dobson is back and in charge of the arrangements. 
He asks Mrs Gubbins if she wants to say anything. She looks sulky, but I think it's meant to be grief, and shakes her head. Lothar Preen launches into a speech about what a great guy Arfang van der Hugendorp was, even though he didn't get to know him. Blodgett arrives, still soaked in Arfang van der Hugendorp's blood. It was my fault. We found a plane. I would have gone, but my leg was hurt. He was a hero. Dobson loses it, runs over and knocks Blodgett to the ground and begins to beat him up, shouting, Where were you? Where were you? The others pull him away as we pause for the first advert break. At this point we learn that L'Oreal has a new product featuring light-revealing booster technology. As the others pull Dobson away from Blodgett, Dobson goes into some kind of fit. Before he passes out, he screams, Blodgett is hiding something! Some hatch! Flashback. Lothar Preen is in a mosque, the imam of which has possibly the most splendid beard in the world. After prayers, outside, Lothar Preen accidentally on purpose runs into his pal, whose wife apparently died in a bombing somewhere while out shopping. They go back to the pal's flat, where he lives with three other men, clearly an active terrorist cell. Lothar Preen removes a listening device from their smoke alarm, and then they all talk about the upcoming attack. Of course, it strikes me that not one of the gang realises that their plans must be known to the CIA if they've been bugged. They just carry on as before. Minnie Crunlop and her baby. Tiny Enid and Pabstus Tack are trying to get her to rest. Pabstus Tack calls the baby Turnip Head. Eventually, Minnie Crunlop is persuaded to go to sleep and to let Pabstus Tack look after the baby. Blood-splattered Blodgett gives Arfang van der Hugendorp's rucksack to Mrs Gubbins. He sits down next to her on the beach, and they stare out to sea. Blodgett says various Blodgett-like pearls of wisdom, and ends, I hope you can forgive me. I'm sorry. He walks away while Mrs Gubbins sulks, sorry, grieves. Then she goes to Lothar Preen, who is fiddling about making something with bits of metal as usual. You said you'd do something for me. Blodgett killed my brother. Will you do something about that? Marigold Chew is trying to normalise Dobson's blood sugar. He tries to stand up, but is too wobbly. Marigold Chew tells him she put crushed sleeping pills in his juice. He nods off. Blodgett is wringing out his gore-splattered shirt. Lothar Preen arrives and asks him how he got that scar on his torso. It's a war wound. It looks more like a surgical scar. Lothar Preen wants Blodgett to take him to the plane so he can collect what's left of the radio for parts. They set off through the forest, Lothar Preen using his interrogation skills to winkle information out of Blodgett as they walk, and Blodgett realising this. They arrive at the plane. Flashback. Lothar Preen and his pal are playing football in a Hoon Park. The pal reveals that he is to be the martyr in the impending terrorist action, but he doesn't think he can go through with it. Lothar Preen with the CIA agents. 
they point out that the pal has to go ahead with it so they can arrest him and get their hands on the explosives. They can't do anything about it earlier, for some reason I can't follow. Lothar Preen says he's no longer cooperating, so they threaten to arrest Cloris Preen. He changes his mind. The baby is crying, and Pabster's Tack is carrying it around, trying to get it to sleep. Just van Dongelbrack sings a loud, screechy soul song, but that doesn't work. Blodgett and Lothar Preen at the plane. Lothar Preen salvages the radio parts. He asks Blodgett why he lied about Arfang van der Hugendorp falling off a cliff. I made a mistake. Blodgett gives Lothar Preen the gun he took from the Nigerian priest-cum-drug runner. Then, without prompting, he admits to having knocked Lothar Preen unconscious just as he was about to do that transmitter triangulation thing a few weeks ago. Lothar Preen puts the gun to Blodgett's head. Blodgett explains that at the time, no one on the island was thinking clearly. Lothar Preen asks him about the hatch that R. Fang van der Hugendorp mentioned in his death throes. Blodgett pretends he was talking about the fore and aft hatches on the plane. Flashback. Lothar Preen is persuading his pal to go ahead with the suicide bombing. The pal says he will if Lothar Preen joins him, and Lothar Preen agrees. Mrs Gubbins is looking at a photograph of her and R. Fang van der Hugendorp. She goes for a walk with Lothar Preen, who says he believes Arfang van der Hugendorp's death was an accident. So why did he lie? yells Mrs Gubbins. Raft building. The grunty man is learning a few words of English. Pabster's tack discovers that the baby is soothed by the sound of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol's grumpy voice and follows him around. Dobson wakes up. Marigold Chu is looking over him. It is almost like a religious painting. She proffers him soup. But while Dobson has been asleep, the key to the gun case has vanished. Dobson assumes Blodgett is the culprit and struggles to his feet, enraged. Lothar Preen assures him it wasn't Blodgett. He doesn't say who it was, but we cut to the rain-lashed forest where Mrs Gubbins is taking a gun out of the case. Flashback. Time for the suicide bombing. Lothar Preen and his pal get into the truck full of explosives. They're still parked in the warehouse. Lothar Preen reveals he is working for the CIA and tells his pal to run away. The pal is very angry. He holds his gun to Lothar Preen's head. Lothar Preen whimpers. His pal has gone all dementedly fanatical, but at the last minute, turn, second, turns the gun on himself. Blam! Marigold Chu, Dobson and Lothar Preen are scampering desperately through the rain, trying to find Mrs Gubbins. Lothar Preen finds her, pointing the gun at Blodgett, who of course looks preternaturally calm and zen-like about this predicament. Marigold Chu and Dobson blunder onto the scene. Gosh, it's tense. Will she shoot? Lothar Preen launches himself at her, knocking her to the ground as she shoots Blodgett. Is he dead? No. There is blood pouring from a wound near his brain, but he sits up. Bespectacled fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol is reading the boring text of some kind of car manual to the baby, who is fast asleep. Every time he pauses, Pabster's tack tells him to carry on reading. Minnie Crunlop arrives and smiles. 
Night. The end is near. Mrs Gubbins is sitting staring into the fire, watched by Lothar Preen and Marigold Chew. Flashback. The CIA, mopping up in the warehouse, reveal Cloris Preen's whereabouts to Lothar Preen. She is in Bodger's Spinney, and they've booked him on a flight in two hours' time. Because he wants to claim his pal's body and give him a decent Muslim funeral, the CIA agree to get him on a flight the next day instead. Night still. Lothar Preen tells Blodgett he saved him from death at Mrs Gubbins's hands because... I have come to believe you may be our best chance of surviving this place. Now take me to the hatch. No more lies, Blodgett. And that's all from Hooting Yard on the Air for this week and for this year. Um, I'll be back next week and next year, possibly with another episode of Blodgett Island. Bye-bye.